invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 6. As we continue looking at the book of Judges this evening, we'll be in Judges chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 1 of the chapter. Our historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak, which was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and then pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. 
When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah, which is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull, and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself." because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, And they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they came up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it be now dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was all on the ground. Now, as we look to this chapter tonight, this text of Judges 6, we'll be looking to see God's faithfulness and also God's glory demonstrated in the use of the weak. We'll see the faithfulness of God and also God's glory demonstrated in the use of the weak. Now, first we see the the faithfulness of God, and we see... Uh, two aspects, you could say, of God's faithfulness. We see both his faithfulness in judgment and also his faithfulness in mercy. We see, first of all, 
his faithfulness to judge the people. The book of Judges bears this out for us again and again, that God is faithful to judge. The people abandoned the Lord, and the Lord brought punishment upon them. Here, in this chapter, it took the form of the Midianite invasion and the plunder of the property and the livelihoods of the people. When the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east showed up, as we find in verses 4 and 5, they would destroy the produce and leave no sustenance. They would take their livestock, they would take their sheep, their donkeys, their oxen, and when the Midianites and company would show up, they would bring their livestock with them and consume all that the fields had produced. And then presumably when they left, they would take whatever remained. This was kind of a scorched earth policy, you might say. And as a result, Israel was brought very low. We see that explicitly in verse 6. Verse 2 gives us a picture of what this looked like on the ground in Israel in those days. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And we see the concrete picture again down in verse 11 where we find Gideon beating out the wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. The people had to go underground, literally, in order to save their grain and their livestock. They had to do their labor in secret in order to keep the produce of their farms. This is parallel, in a way, to what we were considering last week in the Song of Deborah, and how Deborah described the highways being deserted and the peasantry having ceased in Israel, back in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And this was why Deborah could describe the watering places for the flocks as being the place where the righteous deeds of the Lord would be recounted, because those were the places where the people were oppressed or were the places where they could not carry on life as usual under the days of oppression. When they could get back to those watering places, that would be the occasion for praising God and recounting His righteous deeds. What a day of rejoicing that would be when God delivered them from this oppression. And so we see here in chapter 6 the severity of the oppression as it existed under the hands of the Midianites, just as we had seen the oppression earlier in chapters 4 and 5, the oppression in the days of Jabin and Sisera. Life was rough in Israel in those times, and life was rough for one reason, because they had sinned. We find in this the faithfulness of God in judgment, his faithfulness to chastise the people in order to bring them to repentance. The punishments that are inflicted here in chapter 6 are among those that were prophetically described by Moses in Deuteronomy 28, verses 29 through 31, where we read this as the consequence for disobedience. The Lord says, And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness, and you will not prosper in your ways. But you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, with none to save you. You shall betroth the wife, but another man will violate her. You shall build a house, but you shall not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, and you will not eat of it. Your donkey shall be torn away from you and will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you will have none to save you. This has been prophesied a long time before in the days of Moses. And what do you know? It is fulfilled here in the days of the judges. Their livestock, their livelihood, their crops. They have to abandon their homes and flee to these strongholds in the mountains and the caves. This is actually the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness to his word, faithfulness to correct them with the rod of his discipline. 
And notice from verse 6 that there was a fruitful effect of this discipline. The people were brought low, and they cried out to the Lord. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord is faithful in his judgment. He's faithful to bring judgment, to bring chastisement. But he is also faithful in his mercy. Remember, he revealed himself to Moses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, as the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And we see his faithfulness in mercy, his faithfulness and compassion here in the text, beginning in verse 7 and following. After the people cried out to the Lord, the Lord sent them a prophet, a prophet who retraced the steps of their national past. The Lord had done great things for them. He had led them out of slavery in Egypt. He had given them the land and brought them into it, delivered them from their oppressors. They were to fear him alone, not the gods of the nations, but they did not obey. And so the Lord was faithful in mercy, faithful in mercy by sending them his word. He did not first deliver them when they cried out to him. Instead, he sent them a timely reminder of why they suffered as they did. He told them not to fear other gods, but they did fear other gods, and hence the problem, hence the oppression, hence they were brought very low. And what a mercy it is to receive the word of God even when the word proclaims bad news for us. The message of bad news from the word of God is actually a blessing because implicit within it, implicit within a message of judgment from God is an offer of grace. The very fact that the Lord sends the bad news to these people implies that the Lord is offering to be gracious to them. This was the way it was in Nineveh in the days of Jonah. Jonah proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No explicit offer of grace. And yet the king of Nineveh was on to something when he said, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And the Lord indeed was gracious and relented. So the announcement of bad news from the word of God contains an implicit offer of mercy. And indeed, this principle is explicitly spelled out for us in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, where the Lord says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. God is faithful in his mercy, and we see part of that faithfulness and part of that mercy in him sending the bad news, which either convicts the wicked of what they have done explicitly or tells of the judgment that is coming. We see God's faithfulness further demonstrated in practical terms here in this chapter by raising up a deliverer for them, and we'll, we'll consider that more in our, our second point here in just a few moments. But for right now, let's, let's camp out for this this point on the faithfulness of God. And so let's remember that God's faithfulness is full-orbed in its nature. 
God's faithfulness, of course, is not a faithfulness for him to do whatever we want him to do. That is not the way the Lord operates. That's not what the faithfulness of the Lord means. Rather, the faithfulness of the Lord is that he accomplishes his own purposes for his own glory. This includes both secret purposes that are unknown to us, but nevertheless we can trust that those are good and holy. And this includes those purposes which God has revealed to us in his word. God's revealed purposes include his purposes in judging the wicked, his purposes in disciplining his people here in this world so as to bring about their repentance and salvation, his purposes in saving a people for himself by working out a great salvation for them through Christ, working out everything that is necessary for this salvation to be applied to them in all of its fullness. And God's purposes also include his faithfulness to complete the good work that he has begun in his people. God is faithful to the gracious and merciful promises that he has made to his people. And we see that being played out here in Judges 6. Even though the situation was bad, even though the prophet who came to them brought them bad news. So God is faithful. Let that be a comfort to you if you desire his mercy and if you are willing to seek for it on his terms. Through repentance and faith in Christ. Christ came to save sinners. He said, John 6.37, that he will not cast out the one who comes to him. And so run to him and plead his faithfulness. Let his faithfulness be a comfort to you if you are willing to run to him. But let it be a terror to you if you are bent upon running away from him and continuing in your sins. His faithfulness should be a terror to you because he is faithful not only in mercy, but also in judgment. He is faithful to what he has promised and what he has declared. He is faithful to his own character. God is faithful. And this brings us then to our second point, which is God's glory demonstrated in the use of the weak. After the prophet's message is delivered in verse 10, I guess verses 7 through 10, where we, or 8 through 10, where we find the words of the prophet, the next thing that we find, the next thing that we are told is of this visit of the angel of the Lord to Gideon there while he is They're threshing out the wheat in secret in his wine press. And as the text goes on to indicate, this angel of the Lord is actually the Lord himself. You can see that explicitly there in verse 14 and in verse 16. And so, verse 14, it says, The Lord, notice the the all caps there, This this is Yahweh, the Lord, looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Also, verse 16, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Again, we, as we saw earlier in the book of Judges, this seems to be an appearance of the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ our Lord. And indeed, Christ is spoken of as the angel or messenger of the covenant in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so this angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, appears to Gideon, Gideon is there working in secret under oppression, the oppression of the Midianite invaders, and tells him, calls him in verse 12, a valiant warrior, tells him that the Lord is with him. And Gideon follows up with the question that we would all ask if we were in his place, probably. He said, if the Lord is with me, why am I here? 
what is going on here? I'm down here threshing out wheat in a wine press, trying to save what little I can from our foreign invaders. We are oppressed. Where is the Lord? Where are all of your miracles that our forefathers told us about? All the mighty deliverances and the wonders of days gone by. And the Lord doesn't relent. He says in verse 14, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So calls him a valiant warrior. Tells him to go in this strength. Tells, tells him that I have sent you. And Gideon protests the insignificance of himself. He's the youngest in his family. His family is small. And the Lord promises his presence there in verse 16. Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. And therefore in these exchanges, these verbal exchanges that Gideon has with this angel of the Lord who is the Lord, we learn how Gideon was a valiant warrior. It's not because of himself or because of his own strength, but it was because of the presence of the Lord. The Lord says, I will be with you. This was what made all the difference for Gideon. In himself, he was weak, but with the Lord's presence, he was mighty. And we see further evidences of, of Gideon's weakness, both the, the weakness of his faith and the weakness and timidity of his character. And so we see there as, as the exchange wraps up there in uh, verse 17 and 18, Gideon says to the Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. He believed, he trusted that it was the Lord, but he wanted the Lord to confirm this. And the Lord graciously was willing to confirm this to Gideon. And so, hence Gideon brings, brings the sacrifice. The angel of the Lord touches the end of his staff to this sacrifice of unleavened bread and meat that was brought. Fire springs up, the angel of the Lord vanishes. And Gideon knows then, the sign is clear, that he has been speaking to the angel of the Lord face to face, and he is frightened to death that he's going to die. The Lord comforts him and says, peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And, but nevertheless, in this exchange, we see, the, we see the weakness of Gideon, we see the weakness of his faith. We see the timidity of his character there in verses 25 through 27 in the way that he tore down the altar. And I say weakness intentionally. I don't say sinfulness. It's not clear to me that destroying the altar of Baal at night was necessarily sinful. He was commanded to destroy the altar of Baal and to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And he did it, right? He obeyed. He was not told that he had to do it in broad daylight. Sometimes inconspicuous obedience to the word of God it's certainly better than conspicuous disobedience to the word of God. Gideon may have been timid and weak, but he was willing to obey. Praise God for that. And so we, we see here that this man is not brash and headstrong and self-confidence. This man was timid, and this holds true uh, there at the end of the chapter with the request for the sign of the fleece. He may have requested that sign because he was afraid or uncertain himself, or he may have requested 
the sign for the benefit of those of his clan and those of the other tribes who had joined with him, right? There in verse, uh, verse 34 and 35, we see how the, the rest of the Abiezrites had gathered to him and how uh, men from Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali had come to meet them. And, and so they have this, this gathering of, of men ready to go out to fight. And then he asks for the sign of the fleece. He might have been asking for their benefit, maybe some also for his own. Either way, he wanted it to be plain and clear that God would do as he had said that he would. And so Gideon, Gideon seems to have a timid disposition, yet he revered the Lord. He was willing to obey, and he did obey. We see in this the Lord delighting to make use of a weak instrument in order to glorify himself. The Lord equips the weak with his presence, and this is what makes valiant warriors out of those who are naturally timid and frightened. We, we see this Several times in this passage, how Gideon seems to be weak and timid, yet the Lord says, you're a valiant warrior. And so when the time comes for you and I to stand up and serve the Lord, whether it be in an evangelistic situation or in taking an unpopular stand for the truth of God or whatever it may be, let us all look to the Lord and to his presence. Indeed, in the the Great Commission, we have that promise from Christ that he will be with us always even to the end of the age. And so, even though from a natural standpoint, considered in and of ourselves, we may be weak and we may feel very weak, nevertheless, let us never shrink from the call of duty which is laid upon us by the Lord. And let's consider those words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It might be helpful to, to turn there. We'll read those words together, where we read about the Lord making use of weak and insignificant things. Matter of fact, why don't we start up in chapter 1, verse 25 of 1 Corinthians. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Just think about that in relation to to this situation. The things that were were the power of the Midianites and the sons of the east raiding and pillaging in Israel. And yet... God chose the weak things to shame those things which were strong. God chose the despised things and the things which were not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord." Likewise, at the beginning of our time tonight, we heard from Ephesians chapter 6 about being strong in the Lord and putting on the fullness of His armor. It's not that we're strong in and of ourselves, but it's that God equips us. And so this fact that God uses the weak testifies ultimately to His power, right? We'll see that, Lord willing, when we get to Judges chapter 7. testifies to His power and therefore results in His glory. So then no more boasting about men. 
Let our only boast be in the Lord, in God our Father, and in his Christ, who died and rose again for us and is with us to the end of the age by the Holy Spirit, who richly supplies all that we lacked. I will be with you, was God's promise to Gideon. And this is his promise to us as well, as we find in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. This means that we can trust him in our weakness, whatever that weakness may be. It might be financial poverty. It might be spiritual poverty. It might be distressing circumstances which come upon us in various ways. We can trust the Lord. We can trust his provision. And we can depend upon him to work his purposes. Again, as we consider, the Lord is faithful. And so may we, therefore, be his willing servants and also his valiant warriors in his cause. Not because we're particularly valiant, but because he makes us valiant and strong. Let's pray. Our Father, we are weak and you are mighty. Lord, we thank you for changing us from what we are in and of ourselves, strengthening us by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that we would be like those faithful men and women of old who out of weakness were made strong. Lord, we thank you that you bear with the weak and with the timid and you raise them up to do mighty things for you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would increase our zeal, and uh, that you would bless us as we serve you. Lord, encourage us by your faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.